It's time for Bright Ideas. An eclectic conversation on the issues impacting our markets and our world. Featuring Bright Thinkers. Brought to you by the Structured Finance Association in Washington, D.C. Here's your host, Michael Bright. Good morning, everybody. Today is September 1st, 2020. Welcome back to another edition of Bright Ideas Podcast. I'm really excited for today's podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking with Congressman Bill Foster, who represents the 11th Congressional District of Illinois. Congressman Foster has represented this district since 2013. He also, though, represented the 14th Congressional District uh, starting in 2008. So some redistricting and some shifting around, but has been on and off a member of Congress since 2008. Congressman Foster is on the House Financial Services Committee, and it was in this capacity that he and I met maybe about six months ago to talk about some not really interesting financial services type work, but more interesting to some of us and some of our readers, but certainly to me, uh, Congressman Foster also serves on the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee and is the only PhD physicist in Congress. So we are going to get to talk to um, Congressman Foster today about some of that work. We're going to talk to him about some of his work as it relates to digital ID, which is an, an interesting technology that serves quite a few purposes in our economy. I think for our financial services listeners, we'll probably talk a little little bit about how that can help prevent identity theft and money laundering and things that we spend billions and billions of dollars every year to prevent. It seems like this is a potential solution to some of that stuff. And the congressman also is working on the COVID task force. So we we can talk a little bit of COVID today as well. But um, I I could talk for quite a bit of time uh, about your background, but let me just stop there and welcome you, Congressman Foster, and thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. Well, thank you, Michael. I mean, that was for the very generous introduction. However, what you failed to say is that until recently, I was actually the only PhD scientist of any kind in the U.S. Congress. Uh, and right now that I've been joined by a Republican uh, member who's a lifelong farmer from central Indiana, who in his youth got a PhD in swine nutrition and a very kind and thoughtful guy. And he is my partner in the Research and Development Caucus. We're the co-chairs of the R&D Caucus. So I'll take what I can get in terms of bipartisan uh, collaboration. Who's better than none? Okay. We're making some progress. <clears throat> That's great. Um, well, so, so, you, so let's, let's talk about some, some of the, the science work. Uh, we started talking about this. I, I think when we met, that show Chernobyl had just been running on HBO, which I was really into. And I confess myself to be an uh, amateur physics enthusiast. So I've been doing a lot of putting myself to sleep or certainly putting my, my kids to sleep at night by watching physics documentaries and reading physics books at night during uh, COVID. But we started talking about some nuclear physics stuff, and you pointed out that you had worked at Fermilab before coming. So Fermilab, for the, our podcast listeners who don't know, is a particle accelerator that was built, I believe, before CERN. But the idea here basically is you accelerate particles to speeds that are almost at the speed of light. They smash into each other, and we discover all sorts of things about the history of our universe, how space and time work. I mean, real true fundamental questions of the nature of our existence, and these spawn all sorts of philosophical discussions, but the science is, is really, really quite cutting edge and very cool. People may know CERN, which is the corollary to Fermi and mostly in Switzerland, because it discovered this Higgs boson particle 
And I think people are intrigued by that, not so much for the science of the fact that Higgs is what we think gives, and I guess we now know is what gives particles mass, not, not long after the Big Bang, but it was dubbed the God particle. So people thought it was really, really cool and it got a lot of press. But comparable sort of ideas, and I want to talk a little bit about particle accelerators and the future of those things. But you know, you worked at Fermi Lab, and um, now yeah. you're a member of Congress. I'm, I'm assuming the environment in the House of Representatives is very similar to the colleagues that you had at Fermi Lab. Is that uh, would you would you agree with that statement? I think that the only thing that's really comparable are the egos of those involved. <laughs> you know, right. the um, the all the time that I was at Fermi Lab, uh, we had the highest energy particle accelerator in the world. We were smashing protons and antiprotons together to make particles that had not been around since the Big Bang. Uh, actually, at, while I was at Fermilab, I was one of the members of the team that discovered the top quark, which is the heaviest yes. known form of matter. And so um, I had the opportunity as a member of Congress when we had the congressional reception to celebrate the discovery of the Higgs particle with many of my collaborators who then moved on to Switzerland to help discover the Higgs particle. I got a chance to congratulate them at having discovered the second most massive particle. So, you know, physicists are like that. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. So here is where I'm going to do my best to say things that I hope are insightful to our audience. And you have the, you're going to correct my mistakes. But for those who aren't PhD physicists or wannabe PhD physicist hacks such as myself, the particles we're talking about essentially for a very long time, we thought that atoms were the smallest thing in the universe. And then we discovered that atoms were themselves sub made up of electrons, protons, and neutrons. And then not too long after that, well, I guess early 20th century and discovered that there are, are elementary particles that are even smaller than protons and neutrons. The electron is an elementary particle, but inside of protons and neutrons, there are each three sub subparticles, two up quarks and a down quark and a proton and vice versa on a neutron. Is that is that about no, right? It's uh, pretty roughly right. It was sort of mid 20th century when we really had firm evidence that there was substructure to the proton and neutron. And then a lot of the details and the, the actual discovery of the different quarks. And there was a whole series of quarks discovered over time. And the heaviest of these actually is a single subatomic particle. Uh, the one that I was on the team to discover, the top quark, it's a single subatomic particle that weighs more than an entire atom of gold. And so it's a pretty impressive sequence. And for various theoretical reasons, it's widely believed that that is the last of the families of subatomic particles that will be discovered. That if something new is out there, it will be wholly new and different, uh, which is why people are forever talking about needing to build a bigger machine. So that is a, that's a perfect segue. So we have Fermilab and then there's CERN, which again, I, I said is, you know, you can Google it, but like the God particle, which here's an elementary description that I understand it. This is uh, by smashing these uh, particles together at incredibly high speeds, we see events. So it's basically the idea of if you want to understand how a phone works, maybe you break it open, you look at the pieces that are inside. So we do this with these giant circular accelerators that use magnets to smash these things into each other. It's very, it takes a lot of careful aim to do that. And we, CERN discovers this Higgs boson, which was theorized by Professor Higgs and another professor who unfortunately his name is not on the particle, so I can't remember his name, but um, it is what we think gave everything mass not that long after the, the Big Bang. Now, there have been attempts to create larger 
particle colliders. I think we started construction on one in Texas and then it was abandoned. If I saw, I, I saw some documentary on that. And right now, I believe the Chinese are talking about building a particle collider that will be even bigger and do even more intense speeds than what CERN can do. I'm kind of curious as, as with a member of Congress who funds science research and a physicist who understands what the implications of this research is, do you find it to be exciting that someone's building an even bigger collider or are you upset that it's not the United States that's doing it or some combination of both? Oh, it's some combination of both. You know, for many decades, there was a very healthy competition with the leapfrogging of energy for larger and larger machines. And at various uh, points in time, the United States, Russia, Europe, you know, had the highest energy uh, machine and was able to have a unique window onto the physics that was of interest of that day. Uh, there was a period where Japan had the highest energy electron collider. Um, and so whatever um, country has the highest energy of a certain class of machine, uh, well, first off, they have bragging rights, but most importantly, they have a window onto the fundamental mechanisms by which the world works that only they have access to. But there's been a tradition also of not keeping those discoveries secret. That, for example, Fermi Lab, the lab I worked at, was started in 1965. And the very first experiment that ran at Fermi Lab had collaborators from Russia. And this was right in the depths of the Cold right. War. Basically, um, the big laboratory CERN was built in reaction to the fact that the U.S. was doing so well in high-energy physics and Europe, which at the time that CERN was made back in the 1950s, there was no history of the countries of Europe working together. And so, but they realized to compete in the very capital-intensive business of high-energy physics, they had to come together to make the uh, joint European laboratory. So they actually have a treaty agreement for participation uh, in this laboratory because everyone was so distrustful. Right. And, and now you see um, every time a new accelerator is built that you get thousands of scientists from all over the world coming in to see what discoveries are be, to be made. Yeah, so there is a really good documentary on kind of like leading up to the discovery of the Higgs, and then, you know, they have cameras in the room when they announce the findings, etc. And it, you're definitely re struck by how, how many nationalities were represented by these scientists. I mean, I think one of the leading, it was a leading female scientist, she was Italian, you know, there were definitely Germans, Americans, Russians, pretty much every nationality you could think of. And it did seem like the, that there wasn't really politics inside of this, this circle of well, well, they're colliders. politics, but they're not national politics. Sure. These are politics of, you know, I want my postdoc to have his analysis or her analysis being used in the paper that we publish and not a competing analysis. So yes. there's, um, you know, in any group of a thousand human beings, there's a pretty impressive amount of interpersonal politics. But the nice thing about these large collaborations is that ultimately it's all about the data. And you can't win a political fight by lying about it. And that's the big difference uh, that I see uh, between science and the politics of today. You know, if you're a scientist and you stand up and you say something that you know is not true and can be proven is not true, that's pretty much a career-ending move. And it used to be um, sort of like that in politics, but it seems not to be anymore, that people are willing to tolerate some politicians who lie and lie and lie 
And I think that we have to understand as a society that really this is as corrosive to our national politics as it would be to science if we let people get away with lying and saying things that are provably false. Sure. And it, you know, it, to these great discoveries that have been made in the past 150 years, I mean, certainly discoveries for a very long time, but it's, I mean, just the, the rate of acceleration of discoveries about our universe since maybe about 1880, 1890, obviously is very, very fast. It takes a lot of people taking a lot of risk to put their name and their time and their careers out there to, to chase down the theory. And certainly there's a lot of unsung heroes who probably didn't maybe pan out some of those theories, but it's still some of those mistakes that we build upon. At the end of the day, though, however outlandish or however logical your theory is, it's not how well you argue it, but whether it can be proven with not only math, but experimental data. And so that's one of the things that I find personally, for what, and kind of for what it's worth, living in D.C., there's so much noise and a lot of it is such garbage that it's almost meditative to read a physics book because it's just objective and what we know. Now, that doesn't mean there's not philosophical arguments and postulates and theories where people can argue. And I think there's something interesting about quantum mechanics where it almost feels to me, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like in the world of quantum mechanics, which is to say, or, or I'll describe it as, you know, distilling the world down to its most fundamental level, you know, for a long time, we thought the universe, or we think the universe is quantized, meaning that it comes in discrete packets of energy, so photons being a, a quantum particle. But these particles behave strangely depending on how we observe them. So the double slit experiment is a perfect example. You, you, you send particles through two slits, and, you, and, and they just do their thing, and they, they make an interference pattern on a wall, which means these things behave like waves. But when you track which slit the particle goes through, all of a sudden they start to behave like particles. And then we still debate really what this means. And there are all sorts of philosophies about what this means. So I'd be curious, like, do you find this to be really exciting? Do you find the philosophical discussions that spawn from quantum mechanics to be interesting? I mean, it drove Einstein. Uh, oh, sure. it, well, I, yeah. it's uh, fascinating, you know, right? one of the truisms about quantum mechanics is that uh, you never really understand it. You just get used to it. You know, you get to the point where you can do pages and pages of algebra and come up with these exquisitely correct predictions of what's going to happen. And yet the underlying thought that you don't really know, you know, what's going on here, it's always with you. And so the other thing that changes over time is the connection between experimental results and, and the theoretical understanding of them. You know, one of the most fundamental um, discoveries of, of all time was the fact that there are only two kinds of electrical charge, positive and negative. You can imagine a world where there are five different kinds of electrical charges. That's not the world we live in. That discovery was made by one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, mm. that there were there are two kinds of charge. But it was not until the early 20th century, that people realized that that was fundamentally connected to the fact that there are two square roots of negative one. And that, that is just, you have to understand the field theory and the possible structures of field theory and complex field theories naturally have two electrical charges. And so it's really one of the wonderful things that develop over time is that sometimes the experimenters are way ahead of the theorists Sometimes the theorists get way ahead of the experimentalist. The Higgs particle was predicted decades before we finally had a machine big enough to actually discover it. Yeah, and there's still so much to discover. 
I'm kind of going through and being addicted to a guy named Sean Carroll, who was, I believe, out of MIT, but he he does a really good job of explaining some of these things. It, it's not really in layman's terms. I mean, it's pretty, it's a little bit, it's advanced, but it's also, you don't feel like you're being examined. You're in like a graduate program. But um, his, his explanation of a lot of this stuff is really fascinating, but he is, he's come to the conclusion that multi-worlds is the answer, that that is the answer as to why different observations um, lead to different outcomes, that there are multiple worlds, the universe splits, et cetera, which is a controversial theory. So it just kind of is an interesting dynamic because it's objective and the data is objective and you, you have scientists who are looking for truth. But um, at the frontier of that is a philosophical sometimes debate about what all this stuff means. It finds. All right. So, That's so right. we have and to the challenge in these always, we come up with a theory that might be true. And the challenge always is to design an experiment that can be built, that will uh, make a prediction that can be tested. That's really the touchstone of all of science is testable predictions. But could you ever, do you think we could ever test whether, well, in, Probably, I guess, someday, but the ability to test whether there's multiple universes seems pretty difficult. Um, well, you have to uh, look at the way they may or may not communicate with each other. You know, that's one of the open questions is whether there's any mechanism to actually, you know, communicate in any way with parallel universes. So, so then I'll, I'll just end with this, this segment with one observation. So I, I read recently that Isaac Newton did much of the actual work that ended up become, leading to Principia, which is his masterwork that describes so much of classical mechanics and classical physics. He did it actually during quarantine from the plague. He uh, left the city and was at a farm and had this time to breathe and to think and to just sort of let his mind wander. So here we are in a quarantine again. Probably it's not somebody on a farm since we use a lot of pretty advanced machines, but do you think that there's somebody out there that's doing something cutting edge with this time, or even if not, like, what is it that you're most excited? What question in physics are you sort of most hopeful will be answered either through this quarantine or, or at some point in the near future? Well, first off, you're really depressing me here. You know, (laughs) Isaac Newton went and, you know, invented, you know, the fundamentals of calculus and classical mechanics during the, during his lockdown. And here I'm just trying to clear my email inbox. And so maybe the difference here is that we're not as isolated. We actually have these, these screens to look at and these keyboards to type in. And so that maybe, maybe there won't be a, the blossoming of, of thought that has happened. There were some, I believe, great uh, works of literature also produced during the lockdowns of plagues. And there's a, you know, many of the most creative people in, in history have gone off deliberately by themselves uh, into the wilderness. Um, other geniuses like uh, Richard Feynman would go into strip clubs uh, to try <laughs> and just, uh, you know, go into smoke-filled rooms and, and people <laughs> drinking and making noise, and that's where he got his creative inspiration. And so there's a wide range in, in the sources of inspiration, uh, certainly in physics and I think in, in almost all human thought. Certainly hope this spawned something. That would be interesting. Okay, well then, let's talk about something Isaac Newton didn't do that you are doing. Let's talk about your digital ID work, if, if that's okay. So you're pioneering some work in Congress on this concept of a, of a digital ID, which as I understand it, and it'd be great if you could explain it a little bit to us. The, the idea here is that we have, you know, there are a few different ways that you can 
identify that you are who you say you are, whether it be a combination of you have a, a driver's license and somebody checks the picture on the driver's license versus you, and maybe now they scan it to make sure it is a valid driver's license. Um, you have pins, which is something that you know, so you have to key it in. We have a social security number, which is a unique identifier to you, but is can be stolen. The digital idea, as I understand it, the idea here is that we would be issued some sort of, a, people would be issued some sort of an idea and then there would be either a biometric combination to it or some other form of verification. And this would allow us to identify us that we are who we say we are, but in a way that can't lead to identity theft and to money laundering and other sorts of things. Is that, did I get that roughly right? Well, that's, or? that's pretty much the heart of it. Well, the, the first high level observation is that the United States is basically the only club that I know of that does not have a list of its members. And so there are, are good historical reasons for this. You know, originally people were very sensitive about anything that looked like a national ID card because right. over history, there have been very large abuses of that. You know, most notably, I guess the Nazis, but there have been others. But since that time, Technology has, has advanced to the point where there are large data firms that do have big lists of everyone and know an incredible amount of information about it. At the same time, there are incredible inefficiencies in our society. And for people that are worried about privacy, probably your biggest worry is not the existence of these big databases, because everyone pretty much knows they're there. But the worry is that someone will violate their privacy by impersonating them online. And that doesn't happen in countries that have a very high quality digital ID. The way that works is that you can think of it once in your life, you go to an office of the government, you can think about the motor, the motor vehicle division where you get your, your driver's license and they biometrically dedupe you. Um, they, you know, for those of you who've gone ahead and gotten what's called a real ID, you know, there's a very serious, uh, sequence of operations. You have to have multiple people looking at you and vouching for the documents that you brought in and, and that it's really you having your picture taken. But at that point, it is not possible to go and get five different driver's licenses in five different states, uh, which it currently is, uh, because they actually use the photograph and other information to make sure that you don't have, that there's one and only one version of you. And then if you accompany that with a digital credential. You can think of this as a little security dongle or a token that you just move into your cell phone. And then you can use that to prove who you are uh, when it's required. So when you want to go online and make a, a bank account, you know, move money in or out of one of your bank accounts, uh, that it will politely ask you to prove who you are using a digital ID. And then you produce the security dongle or you, or you activate an app on your cell phone, which has the equivalent of a security dongle built into your cell phone. And this will allow you to prove who you are and protect you from someone impersonating you online so that we won't have to worry about some giant hack, you know, like, well, I won't name the companies, but you've probably all heard about them in the news, where there have been giant thefts of people's emails their social security numbers, their private information. Um, and so I've, that means that we have to get away from passwords and we have to get more toward a, a secure digital ID. Uh, many countries are far ahead of us on this. Uh, Estonia, interestingly, is one of the countries that's most uh, far ahead. Um, also, South Korea uh, has a very high quality digital ID. 
And interestingly, both of those two countries are countries that have a real problem with fake citizens. The Estonians, for example, have a large Russian-speaking population, and the Russians are always trying to send you know, little green men into Estonia to destabilize them. Uh, South Korea has well-known problems with North Korean spies. And because of this, they understand that it's really essential that one of the fundamental roles of the government is to provide a secure means of, for citizens to prove that they are who they are. And when we have this, then all sorts of, of difficulties and inefficiencies uh, in our country drop away. Uh, one of the biggest ones, I'm, I'm sure all you've, you've all had the, uh, the experience of you going to some new hospital or clinic, and they say, okay, that's nice. Now here is a big stack of forms, and you have to fill out all this information, you know, when you had, were vaccinated for this or that, and when you had that surgery and, and all this sort of stuff. And you know for sure that some other computer elsewhere has that information. The way that works in other countries, um, you know, from Taiwan to, to England, is that you go in and you, and you show your ID, that this is my medical ID, that uniquely identifies you, and that allows the, the clinic or the hospital to pull in all of your medical information uh, into a single file, a single thing that can be displayed. And so you avoid uh, really tens of thousands of people losing their lives every year uh, because of the failure to correctly bring in all the, the healthcare information. Yeah, you know, so, we saw so, another, another huge inefficiency uh, just in the last few months when we had to distribute money on an emergency basis, uh, the $1,200 payment, cash payment to people, you know, who were suffering from the COVID shutdown. And so, um, but the first step then is where do we get a list of everyone who lives in this United States? We don't have it. And so we had to cobble something together using tax records and this or that. It was far from perfect. And it worked the worst, interestingly, on the people that needed the most, the people were, that were weakly connected to the rest of society, the poor person living underneath the bridge uh, who might not have a bank account or a tax record to prove uh, that they are who they are. And it made it difficult to prevent fraud where people could get five or six uh, records of themselves and at least attempt to collect five or six of these of these stimulus checks. This seems a and bit so, ridiculous. I mean, it seems like we're in our own way on this one. Like, that's right. And what we need, yeah, what we need is, frankly, to have a high-quality list of people in the United States. And, you know, one of the tough things about that discussion, particularly for Democrats, is that if you had such a list, it would make it pretty much impossible to exist here as an undocumented person. Uh, one of the real tragedies of the last, of the last five or six years is that the the comprehensive immigration reform bill uh, that passed the Senate in 2013 had really the historic compromise that I think we have to return to today, which is to have a one-time amnesty for undocumented people who have been well-behaved and living in this country for a significant amount of time and have clean records of criminal records and so on, um, and have been paying their taxes and everything. But in exchange for that, uh, the other side of the bargain was that we would have a real ID that meant something. And that there would be, if you tried to hire someone with a nod and a wink, paying them less than minimum wage because you knew that they were undocumented, that there would be severe penalties for that. That you'd have, you'd have real identification checks for anyone you wanted to hire. And if you hire someone who was not documented, there'd be big penalties. That's the way, for example, Canada uh, handles their system, and they have a much less acrimonious discussion of who should be a, a Canadian and who should not. 
And so yeah. I think that's that's where we have to go. And when we finally do pass comprehensive immigration reform with both halves of that bargain, then I think the one of the last barriers against having a high quality digital ID in this country will melt away. It um, makes sense the way you describe it to for that to be a component of something that would be immigration based and in some sort of a trade off the way you the way you put it, of uh, those who have been here being granted the right to stay and continue to be productive members of our society in exchange for what everybody calls border security, but you're talking about that in it as well. Uh, you're talking about security of who's here and how, how we know yeah, who you it's are. It's called workplace enforcement, that okay. you just say, okay, the, the, we're not going to sit there and build a big wall and pretend that you can't sneak past it. We're right. going to say that <laughs> if you're coming to the United States, if you expect to get a job, you had better be on the list of U.S. citizens, full stop, and to have a high-quality list of who's allowed to be here and who's not, and real penalties for companies that attempt to hire people who should not be here on a legal basis. Sounds almost too sensible for Congress, but I hope I wish you luck on that. Okay, so we have to talk a little bit about some financial services stuff, um, since that's what we're, I'm supposed to be doing. You lead the AI Task Force on Financial Services Committee in the House, is that correct? That is correct. And, and what are you guys working on there that you'd love uh, you know, our market participants to understand a little, a little bit about? Well, a lot of it has to do with, frankly, the potential abuses of AI, that when you use uh, artificial intelligence to select a set of customers or to offer customers certain products at certain rates, uh, there's a huge danger that you will inadvertently bias these in various ways, uh, you know, racial biases, gender mm-hmm. biases, and on and on, you know, without even knowing uh, what you're doing. That you can write a piece of code, for example, that simply says, look at all possible correlations um, in, in the data and, and use that to figure out uh, how much it is safe to lend to any person, you know, at a certain interest rate. And, and so then if you do that, without making any reference to, to age or gender or race or anything else, uh, your artificial intelligent agent will rapidly come up with a proxy for this. Uh, you know, for example, you know, it'll look at the products that you buy and conclude that you're male or female or of this race or that race. And then the difficulty is that very often for non-justifiable historical reasons, there are real correlations between, for example, your race and how creditworthy you are. Mm-hmm. Um, not because of your characteristics, but for example, if, you are, you know, if you're getting in trouble and maybe unable to pay uh, your mortgage payment this month, one of the standard ways to do that is to go hit up your cousin who has a fair amount of money and can loan you the money. And so, then unfortunately, um, some racial groups are more likely to have wealthy uh, cousins than others because right. of unjustifiable past discrimination. Yeah, uh, And so that the, your AI, unless it's told not to do, will say, oh, I recognize what race you are. Therefore, you're not so likely to have wealthy cousins. Therefore, I'm going to charge you a higher interest rate. And this mm-hmm. just pushes down, for example, racial groups or gender groups who um, already are at a disadvantage. Sure. Uh, and so we have to look very hard at the results of the application of artificial intelligence, You know, not just the fact that there's no explicitly discriminatory lines of code in the in the computer algorithm. Now that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're going to go to Bank of Dad for down payment help or for help because you lost your job, it probably helps if your dad didn't live in a redlined 
community for his entire life and was completely unable to ever build any family wealth, right? I mean, like, that's exactly is right there. So you're, so you're looking at the, the very real downside of these types of things. Can these things be used as a force for good? I mean, can we, can we use AI to say, let's make sure that communities of color and communities that often don't get left, don't, don't, don't fit the mold maybe for these types of reasons, the bank of data reasons, but they also should have access to our economy and giving, uh, equitable access to all communities, to borrowing and credit in the economy. Can we turn the forces of AI in a direction where they can help with these types of things? Yeah, well, that's one of the great hopes that actually appears to be realized by some of the fintech firms that are actually using aspects of big data analysis to identify subsets of customers that do not appear to be creditworthy under the normal, the normal criteria, and yet they can use other information to demonstrate that these people are, in fact, uh, you know, a good risk to lend money to at a low interest rate. And the challenge there is that these algorithms, typically, if you say, well, um, you know, who do they benefit? Uh, they benefit everyone, but they tend to benefit more one group more than another group. And that's where it gets tough. You know, there's an old test that is a famous test that they give to um, undergraduates in psychology. Uh, or business school, and they say, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to offer everyone in your class $100. They get $100, and you only get $10. Do you accept that deal? Now, if you are a rational actor, you say, of course, if I accept that deal, I have $10 more than I used to have. But then if you're a human being, you look around and say, how come everyone else got $100 and I only got 10 Yeah, I'm better off, but I'm still not happy. And the vast majority of people do not take that deal. All right. And so that's the, the same problem. You know, what do you do with an algorithm that benefits everyone, but maybe benefits one racial group more than another? You know, what limits, if any, should we set on those sort of algorithms? Yeah. You know, at, at our organization, we're working very hard to bring, I would say the bullseye in terms of the objective of what we've got going is we want to bring racial diversity, gender diversity and racial diversity into uh, C-suites in Wall Street. And our campaign is not one of altruism or hearts and minds. We are appealing purely to the capitalists in our member companies by saying, if you diversify your C-suites, you will have a smarter group of people. You will avoid the group think of people who all think and look and have the same backgrounds. You will be able to serve the demographics of the 21st century better than your competitors. So do it fine, do it because it's the right thing to do, but more importantly, do it because it makes sense to do and do it because it'll make you a better company. So whatever works. It's it's very noble and very important. You know, I was on the financial services uh, committee during the financial meltdown. And so I was uh, on the committee when we had the famous hearing with the the eight CEOs of of the Wall Street banks that were on the edge of failure. And some of them, which frankly would have failed without government assistance. And so during that hearing, I didn't have the courage to ask the question, but I came very close. I asked them if they thought that it was an accident that they were all old white men in all eight of these, these CEOs of failed banks. And it was a serious question because there's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and that charges effectively premiums. And so the question is, um, should we charge different premiums to banks that are um, run by risk-taking old white guys? Right. Uh, because if you look at, for example, uh, driving, the insurance rates, at least when I was young, the insurance rates charged to young men were significantly higher than young women. 
uh, for very good actuarial reasons. And so the, the interesting question that is actually borne out by academic research is whether companies are safer and, in fact, have higher average growth rate if there is diversity on the board of directors. And companies that are run at least partially by women have noticeably higher performance in their stock price. So what, yeah. you're, what you're going for is a very important goal that will have benefits um, not only in the average rate of economic growth, but I think in the probability of having an economic collapse. But no doubt. if we have many, many voices in the room, some of which have a different perspective that can spot risks that might not be obvious to the groupthink, then I think that, you know, we may, well, my, my goal in all of this, having been very involved in passing the Dodd-Frank bill, is that I want to die before there's another financial meltdown. And so... Um, you know, it, it was interesting um, during the, the COVID crisis when, of course, all of the banks came in to, to talk with us is the same way they all came into our offices to talk uh, 10 years ago during the financial meltdown to beg for help. They came in and bragged that they were in a much stronger capital position than they would have been and thanked us uh, for forcing them to undergo stress tests and all of this. There you go. Okay. So these are not things that would have happened naturally to the group of people that had been running those uh, those large financial institutions, um, you know, 10 years ago. No, it's funny. I, when I ran Ginny, and this is a very small anecdote, but when I ran Ginny May um, before coming to this job, you know, we had a lot of different non-bank servicers who were our counterparties. And the ones who were well capitalized wanted us to put in place more regulation around everybody else because they knew that you could run in a shop on the cheap without a lot of capital and that there'd be a sucking sound to business there. And we just kind of continue this vortex. So I think that there are, I, or at least I hope there are some well-run firms that appreciate the fact that there's a level set bar that everybody needs to play by. And I do think your the question that you thought about asking during that hearing, I mean, I've often thought about the fact that communities of color were the ones that were recipients of predatory lending and the lead up to the financial crisis. These were recipients of people who were willing to make loans without regard to whether or not the borrower or the homeowner had the capacity to repay the loan, but more, can we seize the house and sell it? And if so, then that's fine, make that loan. Um, and, and there were some you know, higher interest rates, there were the shadier loan products. Kind of thinking to me, well, if you had some folks in your C-suite that had come from these communities, maybe someone would have put their hand up and said, uh, yeah, my aunt just got a loan that's like a, a pick Ridiculous. a pay that's negium. Like, what are yep. we doing? Like, I'm embarrassed that we're doing this, but that voice wasn't there. And so it did, it did perpetuate the bad cycle. Sure. So, you know, the voices w were ignored also. You know, Alan Greenspan was given, the Federal Reserve was given the ability to regulate, you know, mortgage origination, uh, which he refused to. There's a big stack of letters that were given to Greenspan and ignored um, from people that were worried about predatory lending. And had we had in place, you know, strong prohibitions on, on predatory lending, um, a big fraction of the financial meltdown would not have happened. Yeah, and, yeah, um, I agree. So it's so, you know it's right. important to remember history. I, no, I, you're you're right, and please keep doing that, and we'll keep doing it. And we're your partner here to continue to to do that. You've run over time. You've been very generous with your time. I want to ask you one more question, just in the spirit of this. What is something that we're not funding in science research, pure science, that that you think is a tragedy that we we really ought to be doing? I'll give you license to think big here. 
not completely ridiculous, but doesn't have to be tethered to something that's like totally in the realm. Like what, what do you wish we knew about our universe that with some funding and some focus we could be doing that we can help push for? I'll put it that way. Okay, I'll start out with one that is uh, closer to uh, technology, uh, which is that we have been putting increasing amounts of money into energy storage. Because if you want to make uh, windmills and solar energy really useful for the grid, you have to have at least overnight energy storage. The thing that I wish we were putting more money into is energy storage, which is longer term to solve the summer-winter effect, the seasonal variation, which can be as large as a factor of three, because there's factors of three difference in, in sunlight or in wind in different areas. Either you have to build three times more windmills and, and solar cells, as you otherwise would have to deal with the low points, or you have to get a cheap way to store huge amounts of energy for many months which is technologically a different problem than the overnight storage that can be solved with batteries. And so that's one thing that I'm, I'm going to be working hard to get um, more research in that area. Great. And sort of the intermediate level things, if you think about space travel and you think about Elon Musk and all the excitement over what he's doing, there's not one thing that Elon Musk and SpaceX are doing that would not be perfectly recognizable to Werner von Braun. And, and the idea of returning to space again and again with chemically fueled rockets is not going to be something that will ever get the average citizen of Earth a ticket to outer space. We have to look at technologies, so things like the space elevator, things like advanced electromagnetic propulsion uh, that have a chance of, of really dropping the cost of getting into, particularly getting into low Earth orbit by factors of, of 20 or 50. There's a very small fraction of the money that we give to NASA that is devoted to these you know, breakthrough technologies of propulsion. That's something I think we have to put uh, more money into. You know, the third thing is that there are always unexpected advantages uh, and things that come out of pure curiosity-driven research. Things like high-energy particle physics. You know, no one knows whether the Higgs particle or the top quark is going to have a commercial application. You know, I frankly think it's not going to happen in my lifetime and maybe not in my children's lifetime. But as we were building at Fermi National Accelerator Lab, uh, bigger and bigger accelerators, we said, you know, we're paying too much for our electricity. The mm. only solution is to use superconducting magnets. And so we did this thing that everyone thought was crazy, which was we made a six-kilometer circumference superconducting accelerator, which everyone laughed at us and said there wasn't a chance that it would work. And when it worked, we were the only laboratory in the world that had a machine powerful enough to discover the top quark. Yeah. And so we didn't do we didn't, and that's what made the superconducting magnets that use are used in MRIs by you know in many hospitals around the world possible. Yeah. Um, so we didn't do it to produce MRIs. We did it to discover the top quark and things like that. And so I think that's that's the. Um, well, it was a long um, time between when Einstein realized that mass impacts time, like your gravitational time dilation, and when we had GPS satellites that would be impossible to tell your car when to turn left without the slight adjustments for that. So. Pure science does lead to downstream effects. And so, we w listen, we, we really wish you the best, Congressman. This has been uh, really enjoyable. I hope you'll come back on at some point. I hope you let us know how we can help you. I hope that you don't die before all these things because we're counting on you to, to be up there, to be around Washington, D.C., helping make these things possible. And so please let us know how we can be helpful. Sure. Well, I'm uh, counting on you to maintain a, 
a healthy and stable financial services system uh, because that's uh, so many people's uh, health and welfare depend on that. We, we will do all. our best. Thank you so much, Congressman Foster of Illinois. I appreciate the time today. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to our latest uh, episode. Have a great day.